Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. This is my first Theology Explainer episode. This is where I aim to unpack particular doctrines, and I have a very simple goal. I want to help you understand why Christians believe what we do. Today, we're going to take a look at baptism. Now, full disclosure, like cards on the table, I grew up Baptist. I went to a Baptist seminary. Now I serve as a youth pastor of a Baptist church. I'm Baptist. And given the name Baptist, you can probably guess that the doctrine of baptism holds a particular distinction among those who identify like I do, those who call themselves Baptists. So as we explain this doctrine, I will present the case for how Baptists view baptism. If you go to a non-denominational church, it is very, very likely that your church views baptism the same way Baptists do. You may or may not have heard the term credo-baptism. Credo is Latin for I believe. So you can probably see the link from credo-baptism to what it is usually called Believer's baptism. This simply means that the order of operation here is that the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel is believed, which means salvation, conversion happens, and then at some point later, baptism occurs. Like a true Baptist, and I'm really just trying to see how many times I can say Baptist and baptism in a very short amount of time, but like a true Baptist, I am going to make my case in three points. And through those three points, I think we can learn a bit about what baptism means. Then we'll get at both the mode of baptism, meaning should they be immersed or should it be sprinkled, and also the timing of baptism, like is it going to happen as an infant or once someone makes a profession of faith, once someone is a believer. Now that all of that introduction is behind us, let's start with point number one. And point number one is definition of the word. So this is going to be more targeted at the mode of baptism. Remember, mode is how someone's baptized. Are they immersed in water or are they sprinkled? Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. And most Baptists have heard the word literally means to immerse in water. That is the normal meaning of the word. And we do not have any reason whatsoever to believe that New Testament writers were attempting to use a different definition other than its standard definition. So one could ask, why would New Testament writers use the word that means to immerse if they really just meant sprinkle? And that would be a valid question. With that said, we're moving on. Point number two, the New Testament example. The example we have in the New Testament is believer's baptism by immersion. Someone believes the gospel, and then later on they're dunked. If you have a couple passages in mind in way of objection to the statement I just made, hold on a couple minutes. I think we're going to get to those passages soon, and I honestly believe those passages are further evidence for the case I'm making. But first I want to show you what I mean by this New Testament example. I don't have any fancy order or methodology here. I'm just going to go through these passages as they appear chronologically in the New Testament. The first passage comes out of Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. 
This passage is what we know as the Great Commission. Now, as I read these two verses, I want you to notice the order of the commands that Jesus is giving. Starting in verse 19, quote, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. End quote. So in the first phrase, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. To make disciples means that they are sharing the gospel. They are proclaiming the word of the Lord, that it is being received, and someone who was lost is now found, right? Someone who was in rebellion against God has now received the word of the Lord, and they now believe. They were not a disciple of Christ, but now, because they believe, they are a disciple of Christ. So to make disciples means that they are now involved in conversion. They have received salvation. The next phrase is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what we see with the first phrase is that they believed, they have become disciples. And then what we see with the second phrase is those who have believed, who have become disciples, are then baptized. And then finally in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So they became disciples, they believed, they were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, they are now continuing a journey following Jesus, learning more and more about the ways of God to become more and more like the Son of God. Look, this is a normal order of operation that we will find all through the New Testament. Conversion, baptism. Let's move on to Mark chapter 1. Now in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, I am highlighting these verses to look at the mode of baptism, because this is when Jesus is baptized, and obviously the case of Jesus is a little bit different, right? He was never lost. Watch how he's baptized, starting in verse 9, quote, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. End quote. It says he was baptized in the Jordan, in the river, and afterwards he had to come up out of the water. That would only be necessary if Jesus was baptized by immersion. Otherwise, if they sprinkled, if they did an ice bucket challenge or whatever, the river would not have been necessary. He would not have had to gone down into the river. He would not have had to come up out of the water. That would only be necessary if he was immersed. Now let's move to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, again, I want you to look at the order. Quote, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, end quote. Again, making disciples means conversion. They received the word of the Lord. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel, and then they are saved. And after that, baptized. Look, it says Jesus was making and baptizing. The order is so important, and I know we're moving fast here. I just want you to see this consistent witness. Let's move on to Acts chapter 8. So in verses 12 and 13, um, continuing this theme of order, quote, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed 
And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed, end quote. I know it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse here, right? But we see it says they believed and then they were baptized. They believed and then they were baptized. But we're not done. We're going to move a little further down in Acts 8, starting in verse 35. Quote, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. End quote. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. Philip opens his mouth, and he connects this to the gospel. And the eunuch believes and he desires baptism, conversion, then baptism. Now, you may notice it doesn't say he believed, but it's not too much of a stretch here to notice that his desire for baptism, which is a step of obedience, is fruit of his belief, right? Also, verse 39, which we didn't read, says he went on his way rejoicing. He's not excited about a quick bath. He's excited about what Jesus has done for him. He's excited about this new gospel that he now believes in. I also want you to note the mode of baptism. It says, they went down into the water. They didn't scoop. They went down into the water. I know. We just read a lot of verses there, right? But I'm trying to drive in the point that the New Testament is extremely consistent with both the mode and the timing of baptism. The order of events cannot be random. It's too consistent for that. If it is not random, if it is intentionally consistent, which I believe it is, then it is instructive. It is saying, this is how you should do it. So as I said before, there is a common objection to this New Testament narrative, to the New Testament example, and that is the case of household passages. There are a number of passages in the New Testament that tell us about whole households being baptized. So the argument, or maybe I should say assumption goes, if there's whole households being baptized, and that would certainly include infants, right? Let's look at these passages. In Acts chapter 10, we are introduced to a centurion named Cornelius. He had a vision that he's supposed to go send for Peter. Peter has a vision that he's supposed to come. Everybody's having visions. It's great. The next chapter, Acts eleven fourteen, Peter is in Jerusalem after all these events have taken place. And he's basically given the recap of what happened. And when he does that, he says, quote, He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household, end quote. Some see this as the centurion Cornelius believed, and that was credited to his family, infants included, that baptism would have happened for everyone that's there, not just the adults, not just the ones that had made a profession of faith, but you know, while they are baptizing Cornelius, let's go ahead and baptize everybody else too. But here's the thing, Acts 10, 44, at the heart of this event, when Peter is not yet done preaching, we see something really amazing. So here's Acts 10, 44 through 47, quote, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, 
Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? End quote. Now, this is a story, I remind you, that has been used to support infant baptism. But after reading these verses, doesn't that sound like the Holy Spirit fell on more than just the centurion? Doesn't it sound like Peter preached? The Holy Spirit pierced everyone with conviction? Doesn't it sound like genuine faith filled all in the household? And there's no mention of infants in this passage. So to say there must have been infants is just reading into the text. It's really adding on to the text. So we're going to move on in Acts. In Acts 16, Paul's in Philippi. He's spreading the word, and in verses 14 and 15, he meets Lydia. Quote, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed over us. End quote. It's pretty clear that Lydia's baptism came after her faith. It says the Lord opened her heart. Her household was then baptized. But were there infants not yet capable of faith? Or was her household made up of servants, adults, who were capable of making a profession of faith? We're really not told. Honestly, this is the least clear of the Acts household baptisms. However, we know a few things about Lydia. We know she's from Thyatira, which is like 240 miles away from where they are right now. We know she has a house in Philippi. We know she's a seller of purple goods. So some have made the assumption that there must be an infant present in the household. I'm going to say assumptions are usually risky business when it comes to scripture anyways, but if there was an assumption to make about her life, it would be a little bit different. It would go like this. It would be that she's an incredible businesswoman, that she travels far to conduct such business, at least 240 miles, and that business is booming. Now, I'm not saying her having an infant at this time with the lifestyle that we see described in these verses is impossible. I'm just saying it would have been unlikely. Before that ruffles any feathers, I'm just going to say 2,000 years ago was a very, very different time. If we move a little bit further down in Acts 16, we're going to meet someone else. We're going to see that Paul and Silas are in jail singing hymns, you know, as one does. And then this like violent midnight earthquake hits. It could have caused a jailbreak, but everyone stays put. Quote, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay, time out. If you stopped at this verse you could definitely see waters getting murky here, right? When it comes to like salvation, when it comes to baptism, there could be a lot of confusion. Fortunately, the passage does not end in verse 31. Starting in verse 32, quote, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. End quote. The gospel was proclaimed to the jailer and his household. We see that clearly. Verse 32 says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So everyone heard the gospel here. The order of operation we spoke of before is still true here. Baptism after proclamation. Yes, belief happened with the proclamation of the word because it says they 
rejoiced over their belief. The New Testament witness is consistent. Yes, it doesn't say, and there were no infants, but it also doesn't mention any infants. It doesn't mention any children at all. So arguing for infants here is simply adding to the text. The natural reading of the text shows believer's baptism. I almost skipped over Acts 18.8 because it might be the most obvious open-shut case of all of these household baptisms, but it's worth us reading. Quote, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. End quote. This text clearly shows the same order of operation we've been holding up time and time again. Belief, then baptism. And I'm not going to add any further commentary. I've got one more household verse left. And this one might be the most vague. So we're going to find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Quote, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. End quote. So we're not told about this event, just that Paul baptized this household. But you can't really build a theology from one vague verse. 1 Corinthians 1.16 simply doesn't give anything that could serve as an objection to believer's baptism. In fact, Stephanus and his household are mentioned again at the end of this letter. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15 says, quote, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, end quote. If this same household that was baptized has now devoted themselves to serving the saints, to serving the church, that would seem to exclude infant participation. So far, we've gone over the how of baptism, the mode of baptism, by looking at its Greek definition. Then we've talked about the what of baptism, which is the clear and consistent New Testament example. And again, in my view, the New Testament example is only strengthened when you look at the household passages, which are often used as an objection. You have to add to any text to tear it away from believer's baptism. Now, finally, we will go over the New Testament theology behind baptism. Point number three, New Testament theology. Believer's baptism by immersion shows the gospel. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Quote, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. End quote. It might not be a warm, fuzzy feeling to think that going into the waters of baptism symbolizes death and burial. But it is an incredible notion to understand that coming out of the water is symbolism of resurrection. It is a demonstration of the victory of Christ over sin and death. So when we are baptized, we are showing a picture of what Christ has done on our behalf. And Paul is going to really drive this point even harder as we pick back up in verse 6. Quote, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. End quote. We are dying to sin once and for all, showing that sin no longer has power over us. And though we are dead to sin, we are alive to God, fully able to walk in newness of life, fully able to follow after Jesus with our whole heart, seeking to obey our Lord and Savior. When someone comes out of that water, it is a declaration that they belong to Jesus, that their sins have been left in the death of their old self, that with baptism we are identifying ourselves with Christ Jesus. We are declaring to the world We belong to him. Baptism does not save. There's no magic in the water. It is a declaration of what Christ has done and who we are in him. This is an act that honestly only makes sense for the believer to do. And it only makes sense through immersion so that we can demonstrate the death and burial, but also the resurrection. Those are theological truths that Sprinkling fails to portray. One more objection to credo-baptism before we go. Now, many who advocate for infant baptism do so by comparing it to circumcision. And I I know, for some of you, that's going to sound odd. Um, But to help clear up that idea, I'm going to let the late, great R.C. Sproul explain this point. In a debate with John MacArthur, he said, quote, Circumcision, whatever else it was in the Old Testament, it was a sign of the Old Covenant. Baptism, whatever else it is, is a sign of the new covenant. Both are signs for some kind of covenant God makes with people, end quote. He goes on to say, And the heart and soul of the covenant is the promise of God to provide redemption to his people, end quote. He later points out that God commanded circumcision to not only be on those who had faith, but also on children, on infants who did not yet have faith. And he says, quote, We have explicit biblical teaching that God Almighty has explicitly commanded that a sign of faith be administered to a person who does not yet possess what the sign signifies. End quote. The New Testament correlation to that would be baptizing an infant. So even though that, that infant would not yet have what that sign signifies, that infant would not yet have a saving faith. He should have the sign of the faith. He would also say that believer's baptism is appropriate for an adult who has made a profession of faith, but particularly one who is outside of the church. The reason, according to Sproul, that all the New Testament examples are of believer's baptism is because they're all first-generation Christians. He claims their children and their children's children, so on and so forth, would be baptized as an infant. He even states that it's not listed in the New Testament because it would have been assumed in the New Testament world to continue infant participation. Now, I I know I went through that pretty quickly. The video is titled, Baptism Debate, a Pedo-Baptist Position with R.C. Sproul, if you want to check out the full, like, 41-minute argument. But here's the thing. He's right about some stuff. Infant baptism is never mentioned in the New Testament. I think it's not in there because it didn't happen. 
John Piper wrote an article in 1997 called How Old is Infant Baptism? In that article, he cites that the oldest record of an infant baptism is from the church father, Tertullian, which was written about 150 years after the book of Acts ends. 150 years later. At that time, Tertullian is questioning whether or not infant baptism is a good thing. And to quote John Piper in his article, he says, quote, Tertullian speaks the way one would if the practice were in dispute, possibly as a more recent development, end quote. If infant baptism was assumed and was widespread, then why did it take so long for there to be a record of it? Why would that record be of someone who appears to be questioning the practice, who seems to be speaking of the practice as if it is a more recent development? Listen, we have so many works of so many early church fathers. Why didn't they mention it if it was happening? The logical, maybe obvious answer to this is that infant baptism wasn't a thing until long after the days of the New Testament. And that's where we're going to leave our discussion on infant baptism. Look, I know we didn't get to every single word the Bible says about baptism. But honestly, this episode is probably too long as it is. I hope the bit of information on baptism has been helpful for you. And the only challenge I would have is that if you are a believer and you have not followed the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, then please let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you to be obedient to Jesus and pursue baptism, to see and appreciate the great witness the New Testament gives us about this incredible image of the gospel. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.